Welcome to Become an Idol. This is episode 17. What Idol Hiring Managers Are Looking For with Elizabeth Pelkey. I'm Dr. Robin Sargent, owner of Idol Courses. This is the place where newbies come to learn and veterans share their knowledge. In this episode, I'll be chatting with Elizabeth Pelkey, and Elizabeth was a hiring manager at Pearson, and she was hiring between 10 to 20 instructional designers a year. She shares her best interview, resume, and application tips for those looking to land their first or next instructional design job. If you want to become an idol and you'd like to join the only implementation program of its kind that not only shows you exactly how to create your job application assets and build a portfolio from scratch, but also includes mentorship and paid experience opportunities in instructional design and online learning, then go to idlecourses.com forward slash academy and enroll. Enrollment closes on January 31st, so hurry up and join me. The class will start on February 3rd. I have here with me today, Elizabeth Pelkey, and the reason why I found her and I've brought her on to um, introduce you to her is because I went to a Slack group I'm a part of and I said, who here has recruited exclusively instructional designers? Because I know a lot of you are in the position where you're like, oh, what are they looking for? What are they specifically looking for when they're hiring instructional designers? And Elizabeth reached out and she has recruited something like hundreds of instructional designers and she's created like rubrics and um, tests and she's developed them. And so I thought she would be the perfect person to come on and talk to us about how to prepare for an interview and your resume and all those kinds of things when you want to land an instructional design job. So Elizabeth Pelkey, please introduce yourself because I know you're more than me meeting you in a Slack channel. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm so excited to talk about this subject area. I'm super passionate about instructional design, but also about hiring. So this is, it's an honor that you said yes to having me on here. So I'm super excited. Um, and hello, I think another podcast that you recorded said the, the idol nation. So hi <laughs> to all of you. I love that. I love that. So hi to all of you. Um, yeah, happy to, to tell you a little bit more about me. Um, I have been in like formally in instructional design for about 13 years. Um, I got most of my career experience at Pearson. Pearson, Pearson. One of the, if not, I don't know if it's still this, one of the largest learning companies in the world. And so I've been involved in all aspects of instructional design. So from designing and leading workshops to consulting with SMEs and developing media pieces and learning objects uh, to directing an entire division of IDs. So that's kind of how it got started that we would be talking about hiring them. Uh, so I had a lot of experience in the traditional corporate setting, but I kind of went through a season where I felt like I had my fill with that. And so I went and decided to go the freelancer route. So I wanted more flexibility and work-life balance and all that good stuff. So I could focus on, you know, things that I'm really passionate about. So now I'm a freelancer ID. Uh, I'm also a career coach and I'm a yoga instructor. So, you know, I just, I hit all the things. Um, and I live in Tampa, Florida, where it's sunny and warm year round. <laughs> so oh that's God. a little about me. I love <laughs> that you're a yoga instructor. I, like, I feel like we're just, well, like, I, I love all those things too. Career <laughs> development, instructional design, and yoga. Yes. I'm actually yes, going to like go. a yoga retreat uh, in January. Oh, My first one. Are, are they? Those are the best. <laughs> yes, I've been to several, so I hope you enjoy it. Okay. Anyway, I digress. I heard that you're a yoga teacher for the first time. I was like, oh, oh, maybe, maybe. <laughs> little, little nuggets, little treasures I, I am spreading in this podcast that you're learning for the first time. I love it. So now you obviously are a freelancer, but you spent a lot yes. of time in corporate and at Pearson um, yes. as an instructional designer in that kind of realm. 
But I want to hear, of course, your origin story. So how did you become an idol? I feel like if you had a dollar for every time someone said the following phrase, I became one by complete accident, you would be a rich person because I feel like that's how a lot of us got here. Um, so yeah, it was by complete accident. Uh, so in, in 2006, I relocated from Virginia to Florida. And so I was in a, a transitional period. And so I needed to find a job. And um, I found that temp agencies can be a really great way to get something quick, um, you know, just to fill the gap while you're looking for that permanent spot. And so when I when I moved to Florida, I got hooked up with a temp agency. And the irony was, um, I was the only person in their database, again, this was in 2006, with um, an ability in using Blackboard, the LMS. And so I got kind of picked up um, by this e-learning company, higher ed e-learning company, that was sort of new in the space. And they were like, you know how to use Blackboard? We have an, a temp position at this company and we want to see if you're a good fit. So um, I really had no idea that instructional design was a field or a job. My formal education was in psychology and counseling, um, actually. And so I didn't, I had no idea. And so I started at this company. Um, I had no idea that it was an actual field. And I was like, well, I know how to use Blackboard. I've used that in higher ed. So let me try this out. And so I realized, I mean, I fell in love with it instantly. Um, and then sort of backed my way into realizing I had been organizing courses um, for a while. And so I didn't even know that that was something that was a real job. And so um, just to kind of bring back that memory, when I was in undergrad, I think in 2000, one, 2002, um, several of the faculty members that I, you know, took classes from in psychology actually had me help them redesign their courses as like a course load offering in my bachelor's program. A lot of them were like, um, would you like to help me redesign my course? And so I was like, sure, I'll do that. And so I didn't even know, you know, fast, flash forward from 2001 to 2006 that that was even like a thing people did. Um, and so actually I was an instructional designer for three years with this, this company that I got the temp job at before I went back and got my master's degree in instructional design. So just kind of funny, always by accident, I feel like. Oh, definitely. And so then of course you moved out of that temp job, you have your master's yes. degree yes. and now you are, I'm guessing you worked a different job in between Pearson. Yes. No. Um, so Pearson is where the majority of my experience was. Um, that was actually the company um, that I began working for in that temp job. And so through a lot of mergers and acquisitions, the company I was a part of then was eventually acquired by Pearson. So um, same team, obviously a lot of changes, a lot of expansion. Um, I was there for just shy of 11 years. So yeah. So once you're, I feel like once you're at an organization for a long enough period of time, you end up being the last, last person standing. So <laughs> they're like, you're still here. Um, and so that just naturally translated into uh, some management opportunities and then eventually overseeing the whole, the whole division. Oh, okay. So when did you actually start um, recruiting other instructional designers and kind of being yeah. in charge of that whole hiring yeah. process? And what did that kind of look like for you? I know it doesn't look like the same everywhere, but just give people a taste for it. Yeah. So that was around 2012, 2013. And uh, what's unique, I kind of mentioned how large of an organization uh, Pearson is. I think they have about 30,000 employees now worldwide. When you think about being a part of a large uh, learning or training um, team or instructional design team, it's, it's kind of interesting to think about how those teams grow and expand over um, a period of time. And so I had at the largest, um, it, at its largest amount, I had 70 instructional designers uh, that rolled up and reported up through me. They didn't 
directly report to me. Um, I, I oversaw the personnel managers who directly managed them, but essentially uh, we had a team of about 70. And so I would say on average, we were probably filling between 10 to 20. I know that's sort of a big range um, of instructional design openings uh, per year. And part of that was either, you know, people moved on or we had new openings um, in the department. So really ours was just the logistics you might think of when you're managing just a large a large team, a very large team. And so you've, you've got to sort of have a continuous stream because of attrition or because of growth. Um, you've got to have a continuous stream of instructional design candidates sort of moving through your pipeline. So yeah, that's sort of explains the behind why and how we did it and sort of the when. So yeah, 2012 was kind of when I oversaw part of that. Oh my gosh, 10 to 20 a year? Like you could be in interviews all year round. <laughs> well, I had a management team that helped me with that. So, um, you know, I was a part of some of those interviews, but I had um, six personnel managers. And so they, we definitely d divide and conquered um, to get through that. So yeah, it was intense. <laughs> so did you uh, have a process in place, like tiers yes. that it went through? What is that? Yes. What does that look like and how similar do you think it might be to other ones? Yeah, so I think anytime that you are applying to an organization that is large, it is highly likely that you're going to be going through a hiring manager or a recruiter. And so um, with Pearson at this time, we had a great counterpart, um, a really great partnership with our human resources department. And so we had a dedicated recruiter who is sort of that first line that managed the logistics of applications and job openings and postings and all that good stuff. Um, I think instructional designers, you know, we're naturally, we naturally lend ourselves towards organized processes and rubrics. And so the cool thing is, is that our hiring team, uh, we developed rubrics for the different phases of the hiring process and interviews and evaluations so that um, obviously reviewing candidates um, in the, you know, an ethical manner, but also a very organized fashion was certainly a part of our process. And so our recruiter led up um, the first round. We had core questions. And so he would do those first round resume reviews and phone interviews to then hand us a group of, of, well-qualified IDs that we would then take through the next levels of interviews. Um, so typically it would be, you know, you would get that first round through our recruiter. That would be sort of the resume check, the initial phone interview. And then if the candidate passed, then they would move on to our team, uh, you know, various levels of, of phone conversations and interviews. I would say um, there would probably be around two to three levels of interviews that would likely happen as we uh, search for a candidate. Okay, so you know, I can just feel what people are thinking, like, what are the questions? <laughs> you know, yeah. like, what are the questions that pe uh, the recruiters are asking? Uh, yeah. What are kind of the things that you told them to look out for? What kind of yeah. things, I mean, I'm going to keep rattling off. What are the things yeah. that like immediately cross someone off the list? What got them bumped up to the next thing? Could you share like first level, uh, like with yeah. the recruiter? Yeah. So obviously our recruiter was not an instructional designer. He was a great recruiter. And so we tried to keep a pretty open mind in giving him direction on who to look for. So I would say the sort of the entry level things we were looking for um, was some form of background in education, training, even project management or technology um, someone who may even have artistic experience. Um, and I know that seems really, really broad, but, but we really tried to give him a, a very, um, you know, wide range of types of professionals, you know, we were, we were looking for. Um, and so we gave him like, these are, here are our, our ideal candidates, you know, people who have a background, they could be K through 12 teachers. They could be someone who was an HR professional in a corporate setting and was involved in 
um, some aspect of teaching um, or training or learning. Um, even someone who uh, has a background in graphic design or art, um, we would give him like very broad roles or very broad experiences um, for him to look for. And um, if you're working, like if you have someone who's recruiting for you, your hope is that they're able to pick up on personality or soft skills as part of that initial phone interview process. So we would, you know, ask for like, does this person seem warm on the phone to you? You know, like, are they, um, are they excited about, you know, talking with you? And obviously a recruiter is going to look for someone who seems excited about applying for a job, you know, is engaging and warm. Um, but I don't, I don't want to discount um, just this idea that you're looking for a great, I don't know, a, a person who has, personality, if that makes sense. Um, and so the other thing that um, I would say is important to look at, I can't speak to, you know, the current employment practices, but what I would say is look for approximate salary ranges in your area for an instructional design role. Um, the irony is obviously I'm talking about roles that could be remote but if you have no idea sort of the compensation ranges for an entry level instructional design role um, that can be something that can quickly take you off a person's list um, if you're applying i'm going to talk in extremes here but if you're applying for an entry level instructional design role and you're like i want one hundred and fifty thousand dollars per year you know that's you're not going to get passed through in the hiring process um, so you know, keep current on that, take a look at, you know, the Department of Labor and Statistics, um, trying to look at sort of those appropriate ranges for your, your area or your experience level in the field. Um, does that make sense? Like you can get yourself real eliminated super quickly if you, <laughs> if you're like, I expect the pie in the sky. Yeah. So that's something that's asked at the beginning. And I oh, think yeah. some people, um, you know, I actually had this come up with one of my students yesterday, like, how do you answer that question? And my answer might be different from what yours is since you actually were managing these recruiters. Uh, but yeah. I told them that to ask what the range was. Yeah, absolutely. That, okay. And our recruiter was super transparent about that. That's why I loved working with him. Um, in our hiring practices, we were transparent about it. Um, if it was something that was asked. Yeah, I think that's a perfect response perfect response. But I think knowing going in, like do your homework, try yeah. to see what, you know, people in, in your area or people in your field, um, you know, what the, what the range is. But yeah, I think asking is a perfect, a perfect response. So it's, so in summary, what we've learned is that um, your recruiter is, you know, looking for people who have some sort of related skills. They are warm and engaging on the phone. So you don't want any like duds. And, yep. um, <laughs> and then, yep. um, cause you, cause people like to work with people they like. And then the yep. other thing was, you know, that they're going to be happy in that role because they have realistic expectations that match the salary that's available. Was there anything else that you're like, Oh, please do not send this type of person our way. Um, someone who is, who has a high amount of experience that then translates into being a know-it-all or super rigid. Um, and I think there's a delicate balance between presenting yourself as a knowledgeable professional mm -hmm. and someone who has done it all, knows it all, and has all kinds of experience that they are then going to bring to the team. And there's such a balance there. It's hard to articulate that sometimes because you do want a professional to bring something to the team that is new, that is different, that is unique, that is something maybe as a, as a division leader, like we don't have that experience. So we would love your expertise. There's a balance between that and just so you know, I have 15 years of experience and a PhD. And so I'm going to, I'm going to tell you how to run your department. Um, and I know on some of the previous idle 
podcast, you guys have joked about like the PhD versus not the PhD. Um, and so we, we certainly did have some roles, levels of roles and opportunities where a PhD in instructional design was preferred um, because of the level of client or the level of project. Um, but just making sure there's that balance between I have expertise to offer or creativity to offer, um, but I'm not a rigid know-it-all. Does that make sense? Yeah, you want somebody that's still teachable. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it's so true. It's so true. Also, like, know-it-alls are just kind of annoying people in general, in my opinion. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's true. That's true. <laughs> I, so true. I don't have anybody in mind. Um, <laughs> not at all no. no nobody I don't know any know-it-alls um so that's really good okay so you've made it past the first round which is that phone call with the recruiter are they asking types now I teach my students um like behavioral interviewing techniques and those kinds of things did they have a format like that at the recruiting stage or did you you know what I mean like not at the recruiting okay. stage. I would say once they would get moved on to the leaders of the department, mm -hmm. we'd moved more into that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think um, one of the things that I was really proud of, even though um, I've been out of the organization for two years, one of the things I'm still very proud of is our interview style. Once that candidate moved past that, you know, recruit recruiter stage and then moved on to a formal interview process, that's something I just, I really enjoyed. I feel like our team did such a good job at, and I really, I just was really proud of it. Um, and that gets more into your question about behavioral interview style, that kind of thing. Um, because honestly, we weren't really interested in a person's ability to regurgitate their resume, right? I mean, we don't, we know how to read. Um, we are interested in seeing how a person thought, how they told stories, how they consulted. Um, and so our interview tactics were very scenario-based uh, with a ton of role play and storytelling questions. I mean, we probably went over and above on that. Um, you know, because we really wanted to, to see the, the personality of the person. And, and I think there's, again, going back to balance, that balance of sharing your expertise and skills while being able to warm it up with stories and how you think about things. Um, because we really, at the end of the day, we just appreciated honesty and humor and thoughtfulness. Um, that's what we really looked for as a person was sort of progressing through the interview process with us if that makes sense uh yes okay so i want to know what type of actual questions did they ask did they ask so did they ask about so the recruiter did they ask about skills like kind of check off a list to yes okay yeah yeah they were more like tell me about um any um, skills that you have that relate to the job description you know um i kind of backing up just a second. Yeah. It's so important. I'll kind of talk through this, I think, with some of our questions later on. It's so important when you're thinking about hiring the right candidates to make sure that all aspects of the process are well developed. And that goes, that starts with the job description. Um, the job description is sort of a, a way in which you would make sure that you're finding a candidate that meets a specific set of skills and and as a, a company my thought is it's our responsibility to put together a job description that is accurate and that there's no room for in interpretation or or misinformation these are the things that we are looking for and it should be readily apparent right um, so developing a really good Job description is so, so important. And then as we're talking about like the interview, what kinds of questions that we sort of dove into, you know, we really, we want to see who the person is and how they're able to talk about their expertise, how they might be a good fit for our team. And then once that occurs, it's then again, it's sort of like a give and a take. 
it's a management responsibility to help develop a person once they come on board and sort of really set up set them up for success in terms of their their ongoing training and development and performance. So when I think about hiring, I don't I don't just think about we have a need, we need to get somebody in here. I think about did we have do we have a well-crafted job description? Um, do we ask the right questions in the interview? And then do we help our professionals, you know, manage their own performance? Um, and give them resources and tools, you know, if there are gaps that exists. I think sometimes when you think about getting a job or hiring someone, you know, both, both sides of that coin, it can kind of, you can kind of overlook sort of those key parts of the process that really, um, that really give way towards like successful professional development. And, and just overall fit. Um, maybe that's a, a warning sign for your, for your students, right? Like a poorly developed job description, tread carefully. <laughs> How do you identify <laughs> because, those? Ooh, what, that are not specific. Yeah. Gosh, you know, that do not say these are the kinds of activities, these are the kinds of, not just responsibilities, but these are the actual kinds of tasks that you should expect to see in your job. Um, because that can be a really, a really big sticking point later on when you become an employee and your performance is being assessed. And so we, I mean, talk about alignment, right? I mean, from an instructional design standpoint, if our expectations and goals for who we want to hire aren't aligned to the kind of performance we expect, gosh, that, I mean, what a nightmare, right? Everybody loses in that, <laughs> in that realm. So I feel like in a lot of ways we applied instructional design principles to our hiring process to make sure that the job description, the interview process, um, the training for once they came on board, as well as performance management, we worked really hard to make sure all those things were aligned. It doesn't mean we didn't miss anything. It didn't mean that, you know, we had to learn a lot along the way, but that alignment was so, was so key for us. So I have another question. And um, the thing is, is that for instance, I have um, a job board, it's called idle job board or idle jobs. It's a Facebook group. And one of the things I've noticed on there is, um, you know, when people are new to instructional design, you notice that there's not really a true entry level type job into instructional design, even though it sounds like yours could have been, uh, like you could have had some of those, but even if, um, it's like a junior position, they'll still say they already want one to three years of experience or three to five years of experience. Um, what do you think about applying to those jobs anyway? Or do you think those numbers are always accurate? Did you still look at people even if they didn't meet the exact number years of experience? What'd you tell your recruiters or? I think we always looked if it did not match the years of experience. The other thing, and this, this might get into my personal philosophy a little bit. And then, I mean, and not just me, but um, of some of my colleagues um, and leaders, you know, I, I wanted to create a division in a department that allowed for professional development and growth. Um, we wanted to work very hard at hiring the right person, even if they didn't have the exact experience we were looking for as a way of creating a pathway of professional development for them so that they could, you know, get, get promoted, get, you know, experience as they spent time in our, our department. Um, and how we, we were able to, we had, because you think about how big our team was, we had the ability to create scaffolded instructional design positions. So we had entry level, we had moderate, we had, you know, like, in, or sorry, intermediate, and then we had the highly advanced instructional, senior instructional design um, positions. And so we, our job descriptions at the time allowed for that. 
they also, um, you know, they showed distinct differences between level of, of experience. And then our, obviously our salary brackets uh, were aligned to that as well. Um, so I, I always think it's, again, it's just a personal philosophy. The things that I have looked for and that we structured our team around gave way to allowing for entry-level positions. Um, I think that, that those were um, so vital to the health and the growth of our team. Because if, if we hired everyone who knew everything, I don't know, it just, it wasn't a value add for me. <laughs> so, um, so we were fortunate in that we could open it up to allow for, you know, the, the K through 12 teacher who didn't have um, formal instructional design experience yet, we had a pathway for them to enter our, our department. Um, and I, anyway, I just, that was a huge value add to us. I would say um, if you are not finding that, which like you said, it sounds like the current marketplace doesn't really allow for that. I say apply, apply anyway. Yeah. Um, always apply. <laughs> yeah. Always apply. Always apply. I wanted, I wanted everybody to hear it from, from the expert. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay, so now you've kind of talked about how you um, want to see their personality and maybe I'm guessing probably like their eagerness for uh, learning new things and applying themselves and maybe their creativity. Were there yes. any other things, like did you have some kind of, you mentioned a rubric, what were kind of the items on that list? Give us a look over your shoulder as to like how you're grading these candidates. Yeah, I think one of the the skills I would say that we really looked for, and this I hope this isn't too generalized, but really we wanted to see that the candidate had some general understanding of education. And this is more for that entry-level position that you were sort of talking about. I think at the time we really felt like having some understanding of learning theory or lesson planning or knowing what object learning objectives or outcomes, like having that understanding was really key. Um, that was, I feel like in many ways that was sort of our non-negotiable. Do they even know anything about education, teaching and learning at all? <laughs> yeah. Because if that core understanding was not there, we felt like it was too much of a gap. Um, and so there were, for entry level positions, a lot of conversation around their understanding of, of education. Now, if they came from a training background, a corporate background, human resources background, like I said, even K through 12, in general, we would find that, that those people had an understanding of what education is and what the goals of education are. Does that make sense? Like that, that was sort of a, yeah, that was a non-negotiable for us. Okay. Tell me the more. <laughs> um, I would say some comfort in technology because the work that our instructional design team did using project management tools, using authoring tools, being in a, a learning management system, if they were very, if they had any indication of being skittish on technology, that was a red flag. Um, and so I think we would have candidates rate themselves um, during the interview on, you know, how, how equipped they felt at using technology. Um, because that, you know, it, it doesn't mean um, that the ways of brick and mortar are just completely out the window for the, the, the clients we would serve. It just means that technology, I mean, there's just no way around it in, in what we do. So if, if they were skittish around it, that, that was a non-starter for us. Um, so that's probably like the second area. Um, other kinds of things we would look for were skills in consultation. And that, man, I could talk forever about consultation because I feel like that is one of the most underdeveloped skill sets in traditional instructional design uh, degree programs. Mm -hmm. um, 
working with subject matter experts, working through sort of a, a motivational interviewing style, consulting with um, your SMEs on developing of content, we really honed in on do you even know that consultation is a part of this job? And it, and it was a part of the job description, obviously. So it wasn't like it was a mystery, but consultation, I feel like was one of the hardest things to look for and hardest things to see in, in entry level candidates coming in. Um, and that kind of leads me into, um, I don't know if we want to take this rabbit trail, but why we felt so passionate about consultation and how we felt like we needed to develop that in our team. Um, so I can, I can take that rabbit trail if you want me to. Oh, heck yeah, I do. All right, let's do it. Um, so, you know, we, we did establish that as something that was important in the interview process, but by and large, we found that to be one of the hardest skills to expect for a candidate coming in, but also one of the hardest skills to teach um, because there isn't a ton, there are, there are tons of consultation soft skill resources that exist in the world of, of like professions, different kinds of professions, but it's not necessarily something that is very well developed in the field of instructional design. Um, and so at least if you think about traditional master's programs in instructional design or whatever, mm -hmm. they just don't spend a lot of time talking about that. And we were just blown away. And so we felt like here's an opportunity <laughs> where we can talk about consultation, what we want to see and how, how to get there. And so our team actually developed a consultation rubric um, so that we could give our team sort of a roadmap for this is what you should really expect. This is really what you should think about as you are planning your SME consultations and meetings. Um, and so we use that rubric, talk about applying instructional design to your own department, apply that rubric for giving IDs a roadmap for what they should include in their consultations or how they should guide their SMEs, but also it created a whole series of trainings that we did with our team on how to consult with SMEs. Um, and it was, it was some of the most interesting and engaging content um, that I feel like we, we worked on. And it was, anyway, it ended up being a very exciting, exciting and informative project. So when you were in the interview process, how did you measure if somebody had consultative skills? Was it about the questions that they asked? Was it through the role plays? Yeah, so role play, that is exactly where we spent a lot of time uh, just testing out the waters for consultation. So a lot of times we would paint a scenario um, of a typical consultation that you might see in our department. And then, you know, one of the members of the interview team would, you know, play the role, play a specific role, and then the ID would play the role of the ID, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so we would really try to look at, is this person able to take on the role of a consultative professional and lead another person through a series of questions or deliverables or ideas in, a, in an effective way. Um, even though that was a part of the interview process, we were really looking for potential in that area. And as we worked on developing training resources for our team, we really saw it as something we wanted to own and not necessarily a non-negotiable in the interview process. We wanted to see that they had potential in that area, but it wasn't a, if they don't have this, they're out. Um, does that make sense? Like we, we wanted to take ownership of that. Yeah, right. Cause I'm sure you probably had your own process. And then like you said, you'd already created uh, you know, training around that 
you know, how you guys wanted to consult your, your sneeze. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm like curious about, was there anything that somebody said that like made you giggle and cross them off your list? When <laughs> oh gosh. I mean, I probably have, I, I feel like I've, maybe I've eliminated some of those memories, you know, <laughs> and tried to think about like the good things. Oh. Um, but I think, I mean, mostly it would be, um, gosh, I can't even think of one. I need to, I might have to come back to that. <laughs> I always just think, I think interviews are so fascinating. They um, are. Because I feel like, and I've been in a couple of them or whatever, not as many as you. Um, and and I feel like the interviewee always just kind of whether like, I think it's almost subconscious. They just tell you whether they are a good fit or not. And sometimes it comes out in what they say and they may not even mean to say it. Like I remember one time, I was interviewing somebody who wanted to be an academic advisor and we asked her to go, okay, so why do you want to become an academic advisor? And she said, oh, I think it'll make me more marketable. And we're like, oh, we're like, oh, so of course we made the connection. Oh, she just wants to stay here for a little bit. So she put it on her resume and then she's going to bounce. And so, yeah. Yeah. And I was wondering if you had any of those moments. Well, you know, one of the things that um, we, it's sort of like, wanted to make sure is that um, if a candidate appeared nervous or uncertain, we actually didn't immediately eliminate someone like that. So I think one of the, I don't know, issues I have with the hiring process, just as a general statement, is that sometimes it feels like you're, you have to present a version of yourself and that people who are naturally bubbly, outgoing, and extroverted excel at that. Um, and we find that sort of that characteristic of consultation and working with a SME one-on-one, -on -one, I have found, um, just from a personality perspective, people who are, um, are more on the introverted side of the scale, people who are really great listeners, people who are very thoughtful, um, they internalize uh, conversations exceptionally well. We found that you don't, you don't always want to look for the most bubbly, extroverted, outgoing person. We wanted to find the person that was really great at developing a one-on-one -on -one relationship. And I guess that kind of gets back to um, not just like what gets you eliminated super fast, but what kinds of people are you, are you looking for? Yeah. Um, and I, um, I think we, we spent a lot of time trying to make sure that a candidate had a couple of opportunities to interview with us because if they had jitters or they were super nervous, whether or not the interview was in person or not, we did a lot of online and at a distance interviews as well as in person, you know, to really give them the opportunity to shine through and get comfortable. Um, Cause I think nervousness is actually, that's an excellent sign in an interview. <laughs> oh, you do. Cause I guess a person who is sort of branded themselves and is so confident that it's nauseating, that can be <laughs> turn off. That can be a Yeah. 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 I love that. That that probably made a lot of people like breathe a sigh of relief. Yeah. You know, especially if they get nervous during interviews. Yeah. I mean, who isn't nervous in an interview? You know what I mean? Like such a I'm nervous in interviews. Like it <laughs> <laughs> So I totally get that. Well, you mean people don't um, generally like it when they um, are sitting in front of a group of people that are literally judging them? Gosh, <laughs> I know, right? That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying, yeah. So are there any things that we missed about things that you are specifically looking in instructional design candidates before I move to my next question? Um, no, I think we're good. Keep moving. Okay. So we kind of went a little backwards because we started with like the interviews and what you're looking for. But I also, I want to make sure to ask about things like resumes. Yeah. And yeah. Um, like, where did they go? Did they go through an applicant tracking system in your process? Yes. 
Uh-huh. They did. They absolutely did. Um, so there's definitely in, again, when you're thinking about applying to a large organization that has a formal application system, you've got to remember that, I mean, I don't even know what the statistics are, but it is very unlikely that the first eyes to hit the resume are going to be human. (laughs) So that idea of having key skills or keywords highlighted in your resume so that an application system can pick it up and, and align it well to the job description is so important. It's so, so important. So we did have um, an automated system uh, where candidates applied and they answered a couple of questions and then uploaded their resume. And so there was a keyword matching technology to see the degree to which the candidate's skills matched um, the actual job description. So keywords are super important. Um, then the other thing I would say, I love talking about resumes. Yes. They're my favorite thing. Um, but I would say that because we had a large team and honestly because i think instructional design is booming the number of openings that we had we were talking about that earlier and then the number of candidates we would have apply to a position were astounding i'm talking like an opening would go live and 200 people would apply mm-hmm. um and so that's obviously why we needed um a recruiter to help us was to sort through that But just really thinking about this idea that there really are, if a human is looking at it, they're only going to be able to spend a minute, I mean, minute to two minutes looking at them. You know what I mean? And so when you think about how your resume might look, um, making sure that you highlight your skills in a very key area, not in paragraph long sentences, something that is at the top so people can scan it quickly, that there is a good degree of white space in your resume, not like we're not reading a dissertation, Um, that it can be read very quickly is, I think, vital, honestly. Yeah. Um, and that, that really is speaking to the resume that you might use as part of your application process. That can certainly differ from a resume you might bring with you to a resume, or sorry, to, not to a resume, to an interview. It might, you might want to bring along a resume that's a little bit more in-depth, um, you know, that really talks about some of your skills in a, in a defined and uh, narrative format. Um, and so that sort of lends itself towards instructional design is like, I mean, we do look at form and format because we're naturally inclined to do that in this profession. And so, you know, clearly creative, well-designed, clean resumes, of course, they're going to stand out because that's sort of the, I feel like that's the nature of, of the work that we are in. Um, but honestly, you know, Quality over quantity always wins, right? So does that help you? <laughs> I yeah, so. I think I think it's an excellent start. And so what I, I did a masterclass and I talked about resumes too, because I also am a fan uh, because I think it's, Love it can be, a, yes. it could be a real bit. It's like the difference between whether you one, like you said, get past that applicant tracking system or if you yeah. even get that interview in the first place, like who cares about making your second resume if you don't even get the interview. Right. And right. Um, I always tell people that you, um, that you make sure to write it for both the robot, but you're speaking to yes. a human. And I always give the example, just like whenever you do text to speech to like my husband and I'll put in there, I'll be like, I love you because that's how um, my Texas speech works. But obviously I'm talking to my husband. So I say human things, but I say it in a way so that I know that the, that the, you know, the speech to text is going to recognize the words that I'm saying. Exactly. So I think it's the same exactly. way for, for resumes. Okay. So, but now we got to get into those, like other, I want to ask more questions. Like, I always tell people, and I somebody else said it, so it's not really mine, but you got to put the dragon slaying moments in your bullets. 
and, you know, quantify that stuff, especially like if you're a teacher, you know, put how many courses you right. designed, uh, how many professional development workshops you did and who they were and what the outcomes were and those kinds of things. But what kind of, what would you like to add to how to format your bullets or what's actually included in the meat of a resume? Yeah. So back to that alignment, if the language that you are using to tell those dragon slaying moments does not match sort of the words, the cadence, the narrative in the job description, it could get missed by that robot, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so really doing an excellent scan of a job description and ensuring that you're taking some of those keywords and putting it in, your resume is key. Um, one of the activities I, I do or I often recommend is taking a look at a job description, looking at some of those key phrases or words, and then circling how many times those phrases or words are used. Um, and so, I, you know, I look at a, a corporate instructional design job description and it says Addy, like, 17 times. You know what I mean? So it's like, oh, so they care about Addy. Um, or I looked at, you know, a, a training job and it really is, is focusing in on return on investment. That training is a return on investment. Well, then I need to think about how some of the things I've done before have had a return on investment. You know what I mean? And so really trying to match the language of the job description I think is key because you want to use terminology that the hiring manager or that the your potential you know personnel manager is going to be using that is relevant to them you want to use a language that is relevant to who you're interviewing with um, and there's all kinds of ways I think learning professionals describe what they do it's not all addy or backwards design or outcomes or objectives I mean people I feel like are using more, more ways to describe what they do more than ever. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even just the, the title alone. So when you were looking for instructional designers, oh gosh, just for example, yes. what uh, title did you put on your, on your job? Yeah. So we, I think we were going through a transition right around the time um, I left the organization from instructional design to learning design. Um, and so yeah, I feel like, I hope, do you have a, a podcast episode on that? Because I would love, <laughs> no, <laughs> I would no. love to listen to, what, to whatever you find out on that. Because I do feel like we are in a little bit, it's, it's, a, it's an opportunity and a challenge when you talk about learning professionals. I think that's why I keep going back to that phrase, because you're right, there are so many different titles now. Um, and it, it can create a lot of confusion, but yeah, we did, we did have traditional instructional design as the, as the title. Um, but yeah, I get it. There's a lot of confusion in the space because of that. Yeah. Oh, that could just be, I mean, that could easily be an article on LinkedIn or something. I know. We'll go find I it. Know. I know. <laughs> Somebody hasn't done it, which I'm sure they have. We could just pull that one together, doing a search on Indeed or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I do, I like that you said that go and circle, uh, you know, how many times that happens. Mm -hmm. um, and also, you know, when you make your like a first draft of a resume, pick the, like the job, like you really want to get, and then you mm -hmm. start there and then tailor it for each of the other jobs that you apply for after that. That's yes. kind of what I tell uh, people who ask for my advice. <laughs> and it sounds exhausting, but. I mean, any jobs that I've applied for or any resumes that I've helped um, help people develop, I always say, you're going to do a new one every time. Yeah. You're going to do a new one every time. And that can seem daunting, but if you are, you know, teaching and learning professional, um, hopefully you get a little bit of the creative bug when you get to do that. Just think about it as like a learning object that you keep getting to redevelop. <laughs> That's a good way to look at it. Well, yeah. And I, so much of, um, you know, getting a job in instructional design is developing those job application assets. And yep. if you create a good like boilerplate resume, exactly. then it's yep. not that hard 
to go and change your keywords. Yep. Just yep. do it. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. This is good stuff. Okay. So um, references, do you put those on your resume? Um, no. No. <laughs> I mean, I, I say, depending on the, I mean, usually it, it's a part of the hiring process. So references are going to get checked anyway. It could always say references available by request. You know, that's, but no, I do not put those on a resume. And do you encourage um, people to make like, just like a word text version only and a pretty version? I think you kind of talked about that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, and that's sort of like um, a little bit of my, what I call my side hustle. Um, I love <laughs> resumes. We talked about this um, before we, we started today. And I, I do recommend having a couple of versions, the, the pretty infographic style or just clean with a hint of color, you know, some sort of um, graphical elements, but then also that straight, um, you know, word only, highly descriptive, very detailed resume as well. Yeah. I always recommend having two. Yeah. Cause there's a lot of times when you'll be applying, especially in uh, big companies like, like Pearson or um, even a lot of higher education places or even some big yes. uh, corporate companies, they'll have you upload both a resume and then paste the same thing into their database. <laughs> so right. it gets right. a little clunky if you don't have that text formatted version. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And you don't want to like quit just because it's a pain in the biscuits. Right. That's what we right. call, uh, that's what we call those things here in my house. I like it. Biscuits. I like it. <laughs> Eating the biscuits. <laughs> okay. So um, I think we kind of already mentioned skills because I was going to say like what kind of skills, but, um, and I, I mean, if you're pulling from the job description, then you're going to know what skills yes. you need. Yep. And yep. Um, so overall, uh, would you just, I, I think that we've like, uh, this has been so good. I just keep asking you questions. No, that's fine. Um, but so what about the traits you valued the most? I think you've kind of covered these, but will you just kind of recap like your favorite things that you found um, in the people that were successful that you hired? Yeah, I would say that um, we were always interested in personal uh, passions that people had. Uh, one of the things that I find common with instructional design professionals is that they usually have something that they are very passionate about that has nothing to do with um, potentially the, the subject matter they might be designing for. Um, essentially, I guess the, the better way to say that would be a well-rounded person. You know, um, we had people that were incredibly enthusiastic about sports or cooking or Harry Potter, or you would just find these people that had these little creative, interesting touches about who they were that sort of made them into something other than just a, just a person who works here, just a candidate, just a, a person who's interviewing. Um, and so we would always take time to ask about an area of passion um, that our candidates had and, and giving them the runway to not be afraid to talk about those things. Um, you know, we were laughing about the fact that I, I mentioned that I'm a yoga instructor. <laughs> you know, that's something that I'm super passionate about. Um, I love it. It has really transformed my life and my health and my stress level and all of those things. And inviting candidates into a space where they feel safe articulating or not just safe, but just excited about articulating some of those passions were really valuable to us. Um, so yeah, I know that's a little coloring outside the lines a little bit, but something we were super interested in. I think that's, I love that because people who are creative, which is, uh, you know, a talent that you really want in instructional designers, uh, you can see that by seeing that they have these other interests. 
Right. And those other, yeah, those other interests ended up really being assets to how they developed media pieces, graphics, learning objects, storyboards. You know, we, we could see that creativity come through in other ways. I mean, you know, we had a huge college football, you know, sort of draft, you know, club within our department. And those kinds of fun little things ended up being creative launch points for how learning objects were crafted for some of our, you know, top clients. So that creativity and passion, we, we wanted to see that because we felt like it was such a value add to the creative parts of the instructional design process. Yeah. And uh, so here we go. We're coming to the end and I Yay. want people to get your very best tips for those mm. who are trying to land their first job in instructional design. So what are your best and final pieces of advice for them? Yeah, I think, I think we are in a professional era that is so awesome and amazing. And I think you have to take advantage of the era we live in. And, and by that, I mean like two things. Number one, educating yourself with the skills or tools or whatever it is that you need in order to develop yourself as an ID. There are so many ways to get educated in this field. And there are so many opportunities for you to learn more about this field and acquire those skills that you need. There's obviously, Robin knows, you know, idle courses, those <laughs> kinds of things exist, right? So Coursera, edX, LinkedIn Learning, um, there was a new, the Learning Pathways that was just launched by iDesign. You, you do not have to stick with those traditional academic, methodologies to get the skills that you need. Yes, you can get a master's degree in training and development, learning and development, learning design, instructional design, but there are so many ways that are affordable. Some of them are free yeah. <laughs> to educate yourself. And so this was not a thing in 2006 when I started, it was master's degree only. Right. <laughs> so take advantage of that podcast like this one. I mean, it, that that is just it's the coolest thing to me to see that there is such a variety of ways to get skilled and educated in this area i just love it and then same thing you know the era that we live in linkedin oh my goodness <laughs> i mean linkedin really wasn't a super interesting important thing in 2006 either but it is probably I think it's arguably one of the biggest treasures of our era because you can find networks, people, professional groups, other IDs um, in your area or even just in the profession in and of itself. They're, they're right there. Like it's searchable, it's available. Um, and to really not be afraid to network with other learning professionals in the LinkedIn space. Um, the other thing I would say, and this was a, um, an effort that, that I've been a part of in, in many different seasons is mentoring. Finding an instructional design professional, trying to um, find someone who would be a great mentor to you is so, so important. I mean, instructional designers, if, if we are teaching and learning professionals, we naturally love learning. And so we love to share our learning. And so I, I think that you would be hard pressed to find an instructional designer that would not want to share um, about their, their story in becoming an instructional designer or tips and tricks to become an instructional designer, things that they've learned in their professional journey that you can gain from. Um, so mentoring, I'm big into that. I think it's a tremendous opportunity um, and can really help you develop your professional network. So um, the other thing I would say is that I feel like this is one of the best career fields that a person can get into. I really, really do. It has exploded. It is still growing. 
Um, and anybody, obviously, if you're already listening to this podcast, you're in the right place, right? <laughs> so <laughs> I think, I think this is one of the most interesting, innovative, growing professional fields that exists. I really do. I think it's, I think it's awesome. Yeah. It's so satisfying. I mean, yes, you get to use all the things, you know, your brain, yes. your creativity, uh, you yeah. get to like use your heart in the sense that you know that you are helping people learn something that's important to them or their job. I completely exactly. agree with all of your advice and your tips. And this has been a treasure. Yay. Thank you so much for coming on and just kind of like, you know, peeling back the veil, showing us what it looks like, you know, from the other side and what they're looking for. And I mean, just the fact that you told people to uh, be themselves and be authentic and it's okay to be a little shy because that's kind of something that you might be looking for mm -hmm. and the consultation, mm -hmm. just so much goodness. Thank you so, so much, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for having me. It was so much fun. Thank you so much for listening. You can find the show notes for this episode at idlecourses.com. If you like this podcast and you want to become an instructional designer and online learning developer, join me in the Idle Courses Academy, where you'll learn to build all the assets you'll need to land